Hello everyone and welcome to episode 43 of the FFS podcast. Uh, I am your host, Ali Bryan, and with me is my co-host, Paul Dobson. How are you doing, Paul? Yeah, I'm doing well. Um, it's good to have finally transitioned from part-time co-host to glamorous assistant. So yeah, yeah, feeling good yeah, about that. Definitely good. Yes, yeah. that's exactly your position. I should also mention, uh, professionally as always, that this is the Ferrets podcast about misinformation and fact-checking. Uh, we've been away for an extra week, uh, more than usual, so apologies for that. But we were in the midst of a, an investigation you might have seen um, in conjunction with the Herald called Who Owns Urban Scotland? Uh, that was like a full team project where we looked into uh, the ownership of Scotland's cities and towns, uh, infrastructure, cultural venues, vacant land, high streets, shopping centres, everything. A, a, a tour de force investigation comprehensively telling you who owns the high streets and if you could sum up the ownership of all these things in two words paul what would you say i feel like you set me up here to say tax havens <laughs> but maybe we'll say uh distant and private that's good yeah that's sort of three words but yeah distant private so paul you were uh, an essential cog in the uh wheel of uh who owns urban scotland can you talk us a little bit through what you were doing and what you found out? Yeah, so I looked specifically at cultural venues, so music mm. venues, theatres, pubs, anything sort of loosely related to culture or nightlife, um, just to look at who, who owns them, obviously has a huge impact on Scotland's well-being as a country, um, and yeah, found that quite a lot of them were owned by you know big multinational companies some of them with links to tax havens so so a lot of interesting stuff there um fitting quite well with the rest of the week and you know culture seems to have quite a similar ownership to other parts of the high street so yeah yeah so let's talk let's talk big names what are some big venues that are owned in such a way well i suppose the ones that we sort of had in our top lines would be the Edinburgh Playhouse, so obviously a very well-known theatre venue. Uh, similarly, the Glasgow's King's Theatre, but also music venues like King Tut's Wawa Hut, obviously famous for launching the career of the Britpop band Oasis, um, as well as the O2 Academies in Glasgow and Edinburgh, and all of Scotland's well-known Belhaven pubs, so that's spanning mm. the length and breadth of urban Scotland as well. Yeah, and so... Obviously, the ownership of that. Well, people know that some of these big companies are owned in uh, are owned in tax havens or owned by big multinational corporations. But what what is like the impact of that? What's the potential impact of having all these uh, kind of cultural venues or important pubs and things that you know have a kind of community element to them? What's the potential impact and like influence of that? Yeah, so as you say, like obviously people when they think of tax havens, I suppose they think of offshoring of profits. But I think like yeah. what's more maybe more dangerous or damaging in a cultural sphere is about the fact that they're maybe less interested in the actual quality of the output of, of their venues or the mm. cultural assets they own and more interested in what's going to make them money. So that that we've had sort of warnings from numerous people that that could lead to homogenization. So the sort of music you see the theatre shows you see tailored to what makes money rather than what's maybe challenging. Yeah, well, that's very interesting and plays quite uh, well into the interview we have this week, uh, which is uh, an internal call. Barrett's co-editor, Karen Goodwin, who was overseeing the Who Owns Urban Scotland series and uh, wrote a significant part of it herself. So look forward to that. 
And we will be back afterwards with a bit more of our trademark waffling on about stuff. Look forward to it. Karen Goodwin and I'm the co-editor of The Ferret. So how difficult is it to discover uh, who owns Urban Scotland? Some of the more difficult ownership um, work was around uh, looking at particular parts of our high streets, uh, looking at uh, things and companies that are owned in tax havens where we had to do a little bit of a paper trail really to get to the heart of the ownership of different um, either companies or buildings um, and there was lots of kind of uh, interesting type of patchworks that we found of ownership in urban Scotland. So I think what we what we spoke to a lot of experts about was how ownerships, for example, of our high streets have really changed. So where they may have previously been less owners, but maybe bigger owners, big pension firms, investment companies, mm. might have been difficult still to to get to the root of exactly who owned what. But there was less of them and there was a, a more sort of straightforward, I suppose, sort of model of ownership or yeah. certainly like bigger companies involved. Whereas now, particularly in some of the the kind of, uh, sort of high streets or shopping streets that are just on the periphery of the main retail parts of our mm. city centres, you've got a really kind of patchwork kind of situation with lots of different companies, including really small investors holding the ownership. Um, and that's that brings with it its own problems as well. A lot of those, as we found, owned in tax havens. Um, and that that involved the the bigger streets as well. Up to forty percent of of um, uh, property on Buchanan Street, for example, was held in tax havens. Um, right, yeah, significant amount. Um, but also, you know, uh, a quarter on Princess Street, um, and also about for just under forty percent on uh, Sucky Hall Street. So. Although the the ownership was more sort of disparate there, um, there's the high tax ownership um, still to be found. I wanted to give me an example of like you talked about following a paper trail, like over across the series. Was there one kind of good example of a paper trail that you followed to try and work out the ownership and just how complex that process was? We looked at the Bon Accord shopping centre in Aberdeen, for example. Bon Accord is kind of interesting one because it's up for sale, um, like a lot of shopping centres. In fact, you know, the vast majority of those we looked at, they, yeah. they're having, you know, real difficulties just now. You know, it's, it's a model that doesn't really work in our sort of post-crash online shopping world. Um, and so it's owned by Aberdeen Retail One Limited and Aberdeen Retail Two Limited. And um, when they went into administration, it's gone up for sale. But actually, although those companies were owned in Guernsey, if you if you follow that further back, it's owned by the Aberdeen Shopping Centre, which is also held in in Guernsey. Um, right. But previously, a leak from the Paradise Papers in 2018 had shown that actually behind that was a company, a Turkish company called SS Holdings, which mm -hmm. is best known probably for its ownership of Pegasus, which is a Turkish low-cost airline. Right. At the time, what, what was then reported and, and discovered was that um, it was a Turkish billionaire who was one of the main investors behind this holding company, um, Serket Savansi who is, is no longer with us, he's, he's, he's died, but we actually don't know what, what that kind of, that, that 
investment ownership link has has continued to be. Um, right. We don't know at what point that that investment kind of vehicle um, fell apart. When did they de- mm. disinvest? Um, there's just lots of questions there, I suppose. But I suppose what it shows is that there's always somebody in in this case, a billionaire, one of the most powerful men in 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 Turkey, was mm. linked to this little shopping centre in Aberdeen, yeah. um, through the Paradise Papers. We don't often get leaks of information like that, so I guess there's lots of questions that it raises about who else might be behind some of these tax havens, what we yeah. know or what we don't know, and I think that's really interesting when we think about you know international relations um we've done quite a few stories at the ferrets um about you know russian ownership um and yeah. questions around links to russian ownership yeah there's stuff in the infrastructure about china chinese ownership as well there's, exactly exactly um so there's lots of interesting things about that that really i think there's a there's a real public interest in us understanding yeah. and knowing what some of these links are, and because um, of of the way that these kind of uh, models of ownership can operate through tax havens and through, as you say, sort of secrecy jurisdictions, as they're known mm. from from tax campaigners or tax reform campaigners, um, then then that can be hidden from view. That's not always, and just to be very clear, there's there's no suggestion that this is always wrongdoing. This is a completely legal way of operating. Um, yeah. And people will come back to us and say, you know, they pay all of their tax according to the laws. Um, they're not trying to, to do anything illegal here. But it does, you know, raise questions about whether it's the most transparent way of operating. If you're a member of the public, if you just wanted to find out about your local XYZ, you'd get your first hurdle. is like, okay, it's owned by this local company you know they've got their their names in the thing or you know but then you follow it back and you end up with a turkish billionaire yes Um, and that's through and and that's through like people putting effort into finding out i mean there's all sorts of really really complex structures behind some of these uh the things we found in this series and often you know these things are complex for a reason yeah in order to obscure the the official the eventual owners sometimes that can be um you know, a building that that really kind of has a, a big impact on the city. So one of the buildings yeah. that we looked at, for example, was the former BHS store, which sits in in um, Suckey Hall Street. Now, interestingly, um, when BHS went into administration in 2016, there was some research done and it found that a vast number of BHS buildings remained vacant after they went into administration for five right. years. Um, and these often were buildings that had prime sites, very large footprints. Yeah. And some cities dealt with that in various ways. So, for example, last year, Aberdeen City Council used compulsory purchase order to buy that as part of their master plan to regenerate Union Street in the city centre of Aberdeen. In Glasgow, in Suckey Hall Street, that building has remained vacant. Mm. Um, and so we looked at ownership and we pulled, we, we couldn't quite work out what was going on there there was lots of kind of reporting that it was maybe colby investments that it was you know uh, other companies who turned out i think when we looked at it to be in fact um investment vehicles or property managers or asset managers because there's all these kind of layers of development managers who come in to try and develop a building and quite often you'll see reports of these names which will be linked to ownership when in fact the ownership is held elsewhere it's pretty clear that not only is there the financial impact, but there's a, some sort of intangible impact on the community, like particularly with like 
a cultural venue that's owned by a foreign company or somebody that doesn't have a, a direct link to the area. I wondered if you could speak a bit more on what sort of impacts that can have. We talked about uh, the high street and cultural venues being in quite a precarious situation generally at the moment, obviously post-COVID. So I wonder what, yeah, what sort of impacts that can have. I think what we spoke to people about were some of the impacts actually of having some of those kind of more disparate types of um, ownership kind of mosaic in in Uh areas. And that might not be necessarily in high streets, but in other parts of the city. And Mm -hmm. so while you might have with like a kind of a big company um, or a big financial institution might be held in a tax haven and they might then hire an asset manager who will look after that building and make sure that it's maintained and all the rest of it. Sometimes a, a, a very kind of a private investor or a small investor will not pay for that asset manager. If they're held in a tax haven, if they're absent, if they're not based in the place where they where they have that ownership, they might have yeah. gone into that investment maybe kind of, you know, five or 10 years ago without any understanding about some of the challenges that were to come, like mm-hmm. yeah, you know, the yeah. change in retail, the pandemic, the recession, um, cost of living crisis and suddenly they don't have the ability to you know rent this out to make the income they thought they were going to make and they don't have the capital behind them either to maintain that building and so suddenly you're caught in a bind um, because you want to keep hold of that asset because it's no longer worth as much as you paid for it perhaps yeah. um, and yet a, a building sitting empty you know, that's important to the community that could have other uses. Um, it's both, you know, uh, sort of can be an eyesore, can be run down, can drag an area down. And also as a sort of local frustration, you know, um, a, a sort of disempowering feeling that you mm. can't take control of that building, even though it's not being used and make use of it for your community. On this podcast, we're always, always interested in looking at the data and looking at the numbers behind things. And I wondered... How good is the data that underpins this investigation in terms of how good is the official information? How easy is it to find? How accurate is it? How updated is it? How much can you get a clear picture of the situation from the data that's available? In the days that, that Petra and me and Jamie were working on, we relied quite heavily on Scottish Assessors Association um, yeah. information on business rates. Um, I think in the whole, uh, that, that was you know, pretty good data. Um, it was it was kind of fairly regularly updated. It did rely a bit on self-reporting. Um, it was debated by some of the local authorities, for example. But the reasons yeah. why it was debated, well, I think that there, there's there's a kind of it's open to interpretation, right? They might say that actually these buildings, some of these buildings that are vacant on that register, are waiting to be sold or demolished or um, going through a change of use, for example. So they would push back and say they shouldn't be on on that register. From our perspective, well, they're still vacant. I think what we found was some of the title deeds, when we pulled some of the title deeds from the um, Registers of Scotland, which you have to to pay for. Hmm. Um, And so we just pulled a few of those to have a look at maybe particularly interesting buildings or where there was a where we weren't sure about the ownership, we weren't sure about the the SAA data. Um, And sometimes that was really helpful. Sometimes it could be a bit confusing because they gave the tenant um, or or not the ultimate owner. And sometimes they were a little bit out of date as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So we actually found that, 
you know, there's been quite a lot of sales in the last year, I suppose, particularly of things like shopping centres, as everyone's trying to kind of offload these not terribly sound investments as they are now in some cases. Um, So we could sometimes we found that that hadn't quite carried through or been updated. Um, How much does it cost to pull the registers? So it's only three pounds um, per certificate plus VAT. Mm. Um, but if you're doing significant numbers of <laughs> properties, it starts to mount up. Exactly. And so that means that, um, you know, it's been talked about quite a lot that particular, you know, areas where there might be real interest in trying to find out a little bit more about ownership. Yeah. Like, for example, down the, the land along the River Clyde has been for a long time. People have been mm. talking about the need to really understand what the ownership is there, what the vacant plots of land are, what the rights of way are and all the rest of it. But actually to to to, to pull all of the the ownership data um, for large parts of of um, of cities or, 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 you know, streets or whatever would be would be expensive so that's if we can i mean we're not a a hugely moneyed organization but if you're a tiny community group or whatever that's completely unfeasible isn't it exactly and so there's a lot of call for for greater transparency around ownership and for the need for for data like this to be available to the public um and and why should it why should it not be that's all we've got time for for this episode of the ffs show thanks so much to karen for coming on i think it's her maybe her third appearance she's been on as guest before and as a co-host at the rotating cast of thousands that were on before paul cemented his slot um, remember you can go to the ferret.scot to check out all of that who owns urban scotland series there's a lot of stuff in there the power of work that was done by the team i should mention all their names paul obviously alongside me jamie mann petra matievich Billy Briggs, Karen Goodwin, and all helped along by myself doing a spreadsheet and uh, Iris doing all of our promotion. So uh, yeah, a real team effort. So hopefully you enjoyed that. Paul, what have we got coming up? So obviously we're getting towards the end of the year now um, and I'm sure you're all buckling under the weight of the deluge of Christmas adverts and other such festive joys. Mm. Uh, but we are ourselves going to do some promotion around Christmas time, um, particularly around you know memberships and merchandise so keep an eye out for that um, and obviously more of our investigative journalism taking you through to the end of the year cool and remember if you want to get in contact with us you can fact check at the ferret.scot is the email i will see it and respond to you you can get in touch with us on socials ferret.scot on twitter or you can go to our community website community.theferret.scot where you can interact with our journalists chat about our stories and suggest ideas for stories or fact checks if you'd like We will see you in a couple of weeks. Uh, Thanks for listening. Bye. See you then.